thanks for tuning in to the Sojourn Church Podcast. We are a church committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. For more information, visit our website, sojournpdx.org. Well, if you're new with us, my name is Matt, and I'm the pastor here at Sojourn, and we are glad that you have chosen to join with us this Sunday. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to the Gospel of Matthew, or open your phone and and, uh, open your app and and go to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, we'll be looking at verses 21 through 26 this morning. As a church for the last month, we've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, where we have seen these ideals of how Jesus describes the expectations that he has on his followers and, and how it is that we are to live as followers of Jesus. And oftentimes what we've discovered is these ideals and these characteristics come across as counterintuitive and, and really upside down from the world's way of doing things and from what the world values. Uh, we kind of noted last week that if we're completely honest with ourselves, even as Christ followers, that this sermon is really uncomfortable in many respects. Last week, we saw how in verses 17 through 20, there's an explanation of how Jesus and the kingdom that he is bringing actually fulfill the law of Moses. Um, when we think really about the Old Testament, think about the Torah and, and the prophets, and that this is the key to interpreting both the Sermon on the Mount and all of Jesus' ministry. And so what Jesus is going to do now is he's going to transition in the coming weeks of the next probably five, six weeks, He's going to offer us six antitheses that contrast the proper and false interpretation and application of the Old Testament. And we're going to look at the first of those six this week. But what we're going to see today is Jesus doesn't just care about these characteristics that he has called us to live by as these distinguishing marks of his disciples. Jesus genuinely cares about the everyday stuff of life. Of life. This morning we have come to a point in the sermon where Jesus is going to focus on relationships. Now, we all have relationships. And so these next six weeks, these are for every single one of us. And in the next few weeks, he's going to address anger. He's going to address lust. He's going to address marriage. He's going to address oaths, those promises that we make to people. He's going to address revenge, and he's going to address love. Now, in order to do this, this is what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is going to start by actually quoting from the Bible. So we're going to see Jesus pointing back to the Old Testament. Remember, he has come. He's already established that he has come to fulfill the Old Testament, not to abolish the Old Testament, as we saw last week, but he's going to be quoting from the Old Testament. And Jesus is going to interpret the Old Testament for us. He's going to extend the Old Testament, and he's also going to counter the quotations from the Old Testament. Jesus is going to oppose how Scripture has been misinterpreted, how how Scripture is often interpreted wrongly, and Jesus is going to come in and oppose that for us. Jesus is going to probe behind the original Scripture and, and really get into God's mind. I mean, who else can get into God's mind other than Jesus? And Jesus is going to reveal what that intent is and how his followers are to live in light of this. This week, Jesus is addressing anger. Now, I don't know about you, but this seems like a really timely topic and are for us, because doesn't it feel like there's a lot of anger right now in our world? Doesn't it feel like there's a lot of anger in our nation? Doesn't it feel like there's a lot of anger in the city of Portland? There's anger over the responses to the pandemic. Either you're angry that we, we didn't respond quickly enough, or you're angry because everything's been shut down for months now, and the economy's tanking, and we have to wear a mask. There's anger over our response to 
racial conversations and, and protests and riots. There's anger in response to the election that's happening in just a few days. Here's your election plug. Get out and vote. But there's going to be anger after the election. There's going to be probably conspiracy theories on, on misuse of the election and ballots not being counted and, and tampering with the election results. People can even see your lack of anger towards these things and get angry at you for not being angry. How ridiculous is that? In 2020, we all sense this surmounting amount of pressure to respond to a lot of what is happening right now. And how do people want us to respond? People want us to respond with anger. Now, let me ask you a question. Are we, as the people of God, supposed to be this angry as the people of God? I mean, isn't it a good thing when we get angry at the injustices of the world that we see happening around us? And we've seen some of those happen this year. But think of it this way. Anger is more than just getting mad at things out there. Think about the world as is an immensely internal and personal emotion. Let me give you a few examples. What about when somebody cuts you off in traffic? What's the, what's the result oftentimes? You get this rage. There's a reason they call it road rage. When we lived in India, I had a lot of road rage because driving there is extremely challenging and, and a little bit crazy. And Andrea got to the point where she said, I will no longer ride with you in the car because you don't know how to handle your road rage. What about when you feel slighted by your friend? That friend who makes that passive aggressive comment to you, maybe about a decision you made or could be about your, your new haircut or the clothes that you're wearing. You know, what, what happens? It kind of elicits this response of, of anger. Who does, who does that person think they are? What about when you see on social media that, man, all your friends got together. They had a party. Maybe they sat around a fire pit in the backyard and wait a minute, I didn't get invited. Does that not cause anger to boil up inside of you? Now, really, we have anger all of the time. Sometimes we have anger for petty reasons, reasons that don't really matter that much. And then sometimes we have anger for massively important reasons. What about when you get overlooked, maybe for a promotion or an opportunity at work? What about when you get mistreated by others, maybe by your spouse or your family, your friends or your boss? The natural and normal inclination in these situations is that of anger. Now, we live in an outrage and a cancel culture. I mean, I've heard that cancel culture word or phrase so many times in the last six months, but that's the reality of the world we have found ourselves living. And we are not the first group of people to get angry with one another. So Jesus understands our anger. This morning, if you feel like you have pent up anger, Jesus wants to meet you right there in the midst of it. And it is this personal anger that Jesus is going to come in this morning. He's going to address for us. Now, what we're going to see in these verses is the prohibition of murder here is the surface of expression of a deeper divine intent. Here's what that is. God's people aren't to be angry at one another. Think of it this way. If one masters their anger, murder will never occur. Let me say that again. If one masters their anger, murder will never occur. Because what is the ultimate expression of anger? The ultimate expression of anger is murder. Trust me, I've watched enough Dateline episodes to know this. That's one of Andrea's favorite shows. So we watch a lot of shows about murders. I hope that doesn't make us weird people, but we've watched enough of that to know that that ultimate expression of anger, you know, you might say, what about jealousy? Well, it's jealousy that has led to anger that leads someone to act on that. And Jesus, again here, what he's going to do is Jesus comes in and he deepens the understanding of the Torah. He deepens the understanding of the Old Testament as neither murder or anger were taken as seriously in the Old Testament. And Jesus arrives in the New Testament and he takes it to a deeper meaning. Now, as we look at this 
passage this morning, we're going to break it down into three parts. The first part is we're going to see Jesus' redefinition of murder in the first couple of verses. And the second part, we're going to see an exhortation to reconciliation in, in, in the middle two verses. And then finally, in the third uh, part, we're going to see a repetition of the exhortation that results in a warning in the final two verses. So let me pray for us, and then we will open up to Matthew chapter 5, where we'll start in verse 21. Pray with me this morning. God, I want to come to you and just thank you for another opportunity to gather as your church. God, some of us are online this morning. Some of us are sitting around at the Oregon Stamp Society building. God, some of us may be even catching this late on on YouTube or a a replay somewhere. But God, regardless where we are, I ask in the next 30 minutes as we go through this text, God, that you would free us of any distraction. God, that we can focus in on your word and what it is that you want to say to us this morning, specifically what it is you want to say to us about anger and what it is in our lives and what it isn't in our lives and if it's okay to ever be angry and if, if we're not to ever be angry. God, let your spirit be present with us. Move throughout um, our bedrooms and our living rooms, the stamp building and wherever it is that we are tuning in this morning. It's in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, church, let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. And remember, we're going to see that This is where we see Jesus' redefinition of murder. Verse 21. says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, just reading those two verses, my initial thought was, Jesus says some pretty light stuff about anger, right? I mean, classic old Jesus, he's always just coming in and, and joking around. That's probably not the feeling that you get as we look at these two verses. Now, what Jesus is actually doing is Jesus is quoting the Old Testament here, and he's talking about premeditated murder. And, and so someone who premeditates on it, who makes a plan to go and murder someone, which is actually prohibited in the sixth commandment in Exodus 20, verse 13. And under the Old Testament law, anyone who murders will be up to, ultimately subject to judgment. Now, we see that the prohibition is grounded in the fact that humans are created in the image of God. And in Jesus' context, murder refers to the intentional manslaughter and not to the sort of death that might occur in in warfare. And it's almost understood the same way today. It was against God's Torah, against God's law, and against the image of God to murder someone. So that is the reasoning behind do not murder. Now, let me say this, and I really want you to hear this, because I know that we have Christians tuning in this morning, praise God, and I know that we likely have some non-Christians tuning in this morning, and I'm thankful that you are here. We might have some skeptics or somewhere in between that spectrum, and we're glad that you're here. Sojourn says we want to be a place for all people, a church for all people to come and take this journey of learning what it means to follow Jesus. But I want you to hear me say this loud and clear in regards to murder. If you have a worldview where God may or may not exist, then you don't really have any objective reason why murder is wrong. Let me say that again. If you have a worldview where God may or may not exist, then you don't really have any objective reason why murder is wrong. Let me explain myself. And I can hear the pushback already. You might have a feeling that murder is wrong. You might have a popular opinion that murder is wrong, and that will lead to jail, maybe to death, depending on what state you live in. Once again, I see this on all these Dateline episodes. You might have a sentiment, but you have no objective reason to why it is actually wrong 
because your belief system doesn't provide one. But the Christian faith, on the other hand, the Bible actually gives you the most objective reason why murder is wrong. And so think, I'm kind of getting briefly into apologetics here, but as you're, as you're talking with someone, and if you are with us this morning and you're not a Christian, then I would love to go out to coffee with you and we can talk through this because you have no objective reason why murder is actually wrong. Now, don't mishear me saying that the church and Christ followers and the Bible says it's okay to murder because we actually have a worldview. We have the objective that tells us why murder is wrong, which is what you don't have in your worldview and what you're lacking. The Bible tells us why we hold human rights as high as we should and that we should do those things. As a non-Christian belief system, you don't have human rights It's in a non-Christian ethic. It doesn't exist. In a non-Christian ethic, it's merely a feeling that maybe it's wrong. Maybe it's a tradition that the tradition is, no, you should not murder. It might just be a sentiment, but it's not objective. Now, let me say this. The reason that murder is wrong is because human beings, everyone listening this morning, you are made in the image of God. That's why it is wrong. No other reason. It's not wrong because the way you feel about it or because the way you feel about that person. It's not wrong because they didn't deserve it. It's not wrong because we all agreed in a room that it is wrong. It is wrong because human beings are created in the image of God, and that's why it is wrong. Now, this reason, especially to us in the church, this seems obvious. You're thinking, Matt, I I knew that. You're not telling me anything new. But even to those outside the church, even to those non-Christians perhaps listening, I think you you would also say this seems obvious. And here's why, because deep down inside of every single one of us and every single human being, we know there is something different about humans. We know there's something different about humankind. And it is wrong because we were made in the image of God. It doesn't matter your ethnicity or your culture. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. It doesn't matter your gender orientation. Every single person, every single man, woman, and child bears the image of God period. So when someone is murdered in a very real way, what what are we trying to do? We're trying to murder God. We're trying to crush his name. And the assumption in Jesus' kingdom is that we all have value. Now, if you're in Jesus' kingdom, meaning you are a Christ follower, you know that you have value because you've entered into his kingdom as a citizen of the king. But if if you haven't entered in yet, and you, you might question your value, you might question your worth, There's been a lot of depression. There's been a lot of suicides during this pandemic. And if you're tuning in and you're just on your last bit of hope, let me tell you, you have value. You were created in the image of God. And God is here with open arms, ready to welcome you into his kingdom. Now, what Jesus does for us, he sets up this understanding for us so that we all would get on the same page and say, yes, we believe that murder is wrong. But now the reason he sets that up is so that we have that understanding and we're nodding in agreement. But now Jesus is going to take it a step further to our heart. And he's going to, in verse 22, look back there again. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus says, remember how you feel about murder? Like we just left that. So remember how you feel about that. The way you feel about anger should be the same exact way that you feel about murder. The way you would feel if you murdered someone, I mean, that's really hard for us to fathom, but if the way that you would feel if you had murdered someone 
is the way that you should feel when you are angry towards someone. So maybe you've been so angry before that you think that, man, I man, I just might punch that person or I might beat them up or maybe you've had that thought. You don't have to raise your hand or share it, but maybe you had that thought, man, if I was with them right now, I would just, I would kill them. And so Jesus said, the same feeling you would have about actually murdering someone is the same way you should feel towards your anger towards someone. Now we see insults are mentioned at the end of verse 22. And Jesus warns us. He warns us against calling our brother Raka, which is the Aramaic word for meaning empty, or calling them more, which is the Greek word for fool. So Raka, you can think of it as an insult to someone's personal intelligence. That's, that's calling them empty-headed. Or in our modern English, we'd say, like, this is calling someone stupid or idiot. And some of you have probably said that about politicians you don't like, or maybe some social media post of, of others who are voting for people you're not voting for. A moron is also like calling someone a fool. But we see Jesus himself, other places, calls the Pharisees and his disciples fools. So what are we supposed to do with that? A.B. Bruce explains the major difference between the words raka and mora. He says, raka expresses contempt for a man's head. In other words, raka is like saying, you stupid, quite literally, you stupid. Mora expresses contempt for his heart and his character and saying, you fool. So mora is almost more like you know what the difference in right and wrong and you know what to do, but you make that foolish decision anyway. And so you say, you fool, you know the truth. And that's why we see Jesus call the Pharisees at times fools. Now, these things, angry thoughts and insulting words, may never lead to the actual act of murder. We, we pray and hope that it doesn't. Yet, they are equivalent, according to this passage, to murder in God's sight. Anger and insult are ugly symptoms of a desire to get rid of someone who stands in our way. Why is it that we throw, throw, throw insults at someone? Because they are standing in our way, and our desire when we throw insults at someone is to belittle someone. If you've, if you've ever been, um, if you ever played any kind of sports, I played basketball and soccer growing up, and I'm an aggressive player. I played soccer so aggressive, Andrea refuses to watch me play. But I can remember, you know, you're playing playing soccer, especially basketball, when, when you're kind of guarding someone, you're getting really close, and we're just trash talking one another. What are you trying to do? You're trying to wear them down. You're trying to belittle them in that moment and, and pretend that you're the, the bigger one. You're standing strong. Our thoughts, our looks, and our words all indicate that as we sometimes dare to say that we almost are like, we wish you were dead. Have you ever had that glaring stare at someone? Let me see if I can do it right now with the camera. Just you just The way you look at them with your eyes, like you're just trying to pierce right through them. They're almost just saying, man, I wish that you were gone. I wish that you weren't here. I wish you would never be in my life. And Jesus says that such evil is a breach. You know, a breach. You're breaking the sixth commandment. He says, not only are you breaking the sixth commandment, it makes you liable to the very penalties of murder and it exposes your heart. Now, the exact meaning here of judgments has been discussed for years amongst scholars. What, what exactly does he mean by these judgments? But it's at least clear that Jesus was issuing a solemn warning to us about divine judgment in regards to anger. Jesus added that anyone who is angry without cause... So I think that's important, without cause. So there, there are places, and we're going to discuss that a little bit, where there's cause for anger. But anyone who's angry without cause will equally be liable to judgment. Not only are anger and insult the equivalent to murder, he said, but the punishment to which they render us liable is nothing less than the divine judgment of hell. So according to this, if you are angry without cause, then you are no better than a murderer in God's eyes. Now, before we say that's not fair, let's let's continue to unpack this a little bit. Where it, get, it gets complicated, though, and, you, and you're probably already thinking this if, you, if you're familiar with the Bible, is that 
Not all anger is wrong. Well, well, how do we know that? Didn't Jesus say it was wrong to be angry? Not all anger is wrong because we see Jesus get angry. What's interesting though, if you go back and study the New Testament and you see the places where Jesus gets angry, his anger was almost never directed at what we call the, the bad people. What we see instead is Jesus' anger is almost always directed towards the good people towards the religious people, towards the rule keepers, and to those who believe that they were morally superior to another group. We see this time and time again throughout the New Testament. That's where Jesus exemplifies the majority of his anger. So think of it like this. God's anger is characterized by being slow, by being specific, and by being towards sin. Our anger, on the other hand, is exemplified by being quick. Our anger is general, and our anger is towards self. So God's anger is slow. In other words, God doesn't just fly off the handle like we do. And God is merciful. And his mercy is, he's slow to judgment. He says judgment will come, but he's slow to judgment. He's merciful. Think about if you are a Christian, that means God was slow in his anger with you. God has every right to be angry with us because we are all sinners. But if you are already in Christ, then he was slow to his anger. Instead of giving you the ultimate judgment and punishment you deserved, he was merciful and he called you to himself. This morning, once again, if you're listening in, then God has been merciful with you. The fact that you're still alive, that you're still here, and that you're still breathing, God has been merciful with you, and it's not too late to embrace him and that call that he says to become and be son or daughter of me. We see God's anger is specific. God gets angry at specific attitudes, thoughts, and actions. What are those attitudes, thoughts, and actions? That's the third thing. God's anger is towards sin, and that is what we should be getting angry at. He isn't hot and cold like us. God doesn't have these emotions where he's all the way hot and he's all the way cold. You know, some of you are like that. You walk into a room, we're like, all right, what version of this person do we get today? Are they, are they all in hot and excited or are they kind of completely cold and standoffish? We don't know. God is not like that. And God still desires forgiveness. Oftentimes what we'll do is we'll get angry at someone for maybe something they did one time. And they may not even realize they did that. And if, if that's you, you need to go talk to that person. They say, you may not even realize that you made me angry. But we'll hold something against someone. So remember what they did four or five years ago to me? Yeah, that person's not who you think they are. I mean, we don't see God do that. We see God desires to forgive us. Our own anger, on the other hand, it's quick. Our instinctual impulse is to rage against the one who we believe has wronged us. This is why we get into road rage, okay? I'm guilty of that sometimes. Someone will cut me off, or I was like driving out on the west side recently. Don't even go to the west side. There's no reason the east side's better, but I was driving the west side of town, this guy ran a stop sign and then flipped me off for it. So what I do? I honk the horn and I followed him. Now, I don't know what I was going to do if he stopped his car. I calmed down and I continued to go. So my anger was quick. Our anger is general. Normally, it starts with a specific thing, but we are blinded by our anger and we think only of them as purely evil. So once again, we, we kind of even forget sometimes what they did, but we just think, that's a bad person. I don't, I don't, I'm angry at them. And then our anger is towards self. We get angry at what's best for us. Our personal preferences, how our day has been, our desire to control others is exemplified in our anger. So God's anger is towards sin. Ours is towards self. What is best for me? I am number one and I'm angry because things did not go my way. Okay, I'm a, I'm a millennial even when I don't want to admit it. So I would say millennials and Gen Z, we, we exemplify this all the time. It's all about us. And we get angry when things don't go our way. Like, like we got short change. Have you seen the previous generations ahead of us? Don't let me get off on a rabbit trail. And so church, let me tell you this, test your anger, test your anger, because anger is destructive. Anger will tear your life apart. Anger will tear your relationships apart. Anger will tear your marriage apart. 
You know, I think this idea of festering anger. If you don't deal with it, deal with it quickly. That we'll see that anger, and it's almost like a, a cancerous tumor, and it'll just continue to grow and take over all of your world. Anger burns hot, and what anger will do will motivate us to do things that we never thought we would do, and anger will ultimately destroy us. And so, church, test your anger. Here's the rule of thumb. Because once again, we do see there's times to get angry, just like God gets angry. There's this thing as such a thing as righteous anger. But as a rule of thumb, never assume that your anger is godly. Because we'll hear a message like this, and that's what we'll do. Well, I'm, 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 I've got God's type of anger. That's why I'm angry. No, the rule of thumb is never assume that your anger is godly. Assume that your anger is sin, and then prove that your anger is godly. If your anger is godly, it'll become evident to you and everyone around you that, man, they have a righteous anger. In other words, don't start trying to justify your anger by pointing to Jesus at his anger, because it's not the same. Now, as we move into our next set of verses, what we're going to see is we're going to see an exhortation to reconciliation with others. It's verse 23. Pick up there with me. It says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So now Jesus is going to continue. He sets up the idea of murder, why it's wrong. He sets up anger, why it's wrong. And now Jesus is going to proceed to give us practical applications of how it is that you actually live this out with another individual. And so we think reconciliation with the person who has something against us must take precedence in our lives, even over worshiping, even over offering worship to Jesus based on this passage. So what does that mean for us? Real practical. If you're in the middle of a church gathering and suddenly light bulb goes off, maybe this morning, you're watching, you're tuning in, you're with us at the stamp building, and a light bulb is going off. I've got anger towards someone. According to this passage, what you need to do is you need to leave immediately, right now. So you have permission to shut down your laptop, turn off your phone, get in your car, or get on your phone and call that person to say, we need to make things right. Don't wait until the gathering has ended. So even if that's you right now, I'm serious. Stop what you're doing. Stop tuning in and go and make things right. You can go back and rewatch this later on YouTube. Seek out your brother or sister and seek out their forgiveness and be reconciled with them. I know that some of you need to do that this morning. Some of you have someone, somebody in your life. I don't know who that is. It might be a brother or a sister or aunt and uncle or mom or a dad or a coworker or an old boss or a spouse that you need to get right with this morning. And so I exhort you to go and to do that. I'm gonna go back and watch. I'm hoping I see the numbers dropping on who's tuning in this morning so that you're actually living this out. Now, Jesus isn't talking about petty differences or even theological differences, but he's talking about the kind of anger that will ultimately lead to murder. Even right now, if you have a grievance with someone, go and get this right. Because the principle we see here is first go and be reconciled, then come and offer your worship to God. And so in a really real way, Jesus emphasized our reconciliation needs to take place first. Think about if we start living this way week in and week out. Between sun, after Sunday, after our gathering, and then Monday through Saturday, that you think, man, you know, every Saturday, you almost have like a check thing in your head going, is there anyone I'm angry with? Is there anyone I have something against? Because I need to get that right, because I want to go worship tomorrow morning with my church body, and I want to make sure that I can do it with the right heart and a right mind and a right attitude. We see that Jesus, he emphasizes reconciliation more than what was typical in his world and more than what is typical in our world. Because what we'll do is say, I'm just going to let it, I'm going to let it, we'll say we're going to let it go, but it actually just builds in our heart. We kind of get calloused more and more towards or against somebody. I've been there myself. 
I had a situation when I first moved to the city. It happened within the first, uh, I think, two months, and then we went almost two years. But, but we eventually reconciled with one another. You know, even this week, as I'm just being transparent with you to, to show that I'm not above this or beyond this, like Jesus, because Jesus is. There's someone who had friended me on Facebook uh, probably at this point almost 10 years ago. And there's a situation with this individual that made me so angry, so mad. I mean, I was angry enough that I wanted to drive four hours to where this individual worked. And, and if I had the opportunity, I would have probably acted on my anger and, and, and probably done something way worse. I didn't do that, but I've never accepted their, their Facebook friend request. Why have I not done that? Because I've been angry at them. And so this week, I decided, you know what? I'm going to accept that request. They probably don't even remember they sent me a Facebook request. I know that seems so silly and so trivial, but I'm just being transparent in my heart because my guess is I'm not the only one. My guess is you have something like that in your life this morning as well. And then finally, we're going to see in the final two verses, this repetition of the exhortation resulting in warning, in a warning. Verse 25. It says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you'd be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So now we see the importance of, of reconciliation. He illustrates it by the example of a person who is about to be judged in a court of law. And he says not to be not to be reconciled. It can have disastrous con- consequences on a human level because if you're not reconciled with one another, now how can you be ever reconciled with God? And so we must immediately, as soon as we are conscious of a broken relationship, we must do whatever we can to mend that relationship. If, it's, if it was on us, then we need to be the one who apologizes. If it's on them, we need to be the one who's willing to forgive. And if we want to avoid committing murder in God's sight, we must make, take every possible step, every possible step to live in peace and love all men. Now, that's, that's not easy. It's easy to say it. It's easy to be up on a stage or in front of a camera and say that, but Man, have you ever lived with some of these people? Like, these are real-life relationships we're talking about. But we must seek to love God, love others, and live in peace with all men. And so this last paragraph, these last couple of verses, what it does is it illustrates for us the centrality of reconciliation with others by appealing to an extreme situation. We see that Jesus is for reconciliation, even if it means interrupting the sacred actions, such as a, a gathering of God's people, and legal judgments. And so go and be reconciled. Now, those familiar with the Bible and the teaching of Jesus are, are, are most likely to miss this point. We, I think we, we miss a lot of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm realizing that as I'm studying it week in and week out. I realize you're not in my study with me. I wish that you could be. But I think as we look at this, our reaction can be almost like, can you believe it? Can you believe that Jesus is equating anger with murder? Like, this is shocking. But we must remember in Jesus' day that Moses was the man. Like, like, like Christians look back also, man, Moses, like that's one of the heroes of the faith. And He prohibited murder. But what does Jesus do? Jesus comes in as one above Moses, and he prohibits something even deeper than murder. He doesn't go against that. says, yeah, murder's wrong. But he goes, you know what else is wrong? He he prohibits anger. Jesus is setting himself up against Moses in the sense that he's saying, I am greater than Moses, which is why we see this messianic ethic where the king and the kingdom calls his kingdom citizens, of those of us who are Christ followers, to now live as if the king has arrived. Jesus is saying, I have now come, so now you got to live an entirely new way. you got to live an entirely new system because I have come and fulfilled. Remember, he's fulfilled the law, not abolished the law, and that should cause a natural response and inclination of his followers to live now as citizens of his kingdom. And Jesus wants his followers to be different, altogether different, when it comes to anger and when it comes to murder. So in light of how the New Testament frames the ethics of Jesus, 
The best interpretation is what we can call an ethic from beyond. So think of it this way. The kingdom is both partially realized, it's, it's both the here and now, and the kingdom is also partially yet to come. So it's not we're not fully there yet, but we can live as, you know, you've probably heard the phrase, in Portland as it is in heaven. And so that, that, that part is going ahead in Portland as it is in heaven. We're, we're realizing there is a here and now to this kingdom mentality, but there's also a part that is not yet, that is yet to come. But we live in the now, but not yet. And so some of the powers and the kingdoms have already been unleashed. Think about it, we have the Holy Spirit so when you're in these relationships and you think about anger, you gotta, you get, you got to say, I've got the Holy Spirit within me. I think sometimes we just have to pause, slow down, take a breath, and ask God to work. God, where would you lead me? How would you lead me to respond in this situation? And so followers of Jesus, we are to avoid sinful anger, and, and we are capable of being transformed from anger. Some of us are just angry people. You know, right now in the city of Portland, we just seem angry. We just seem mad at every single thing in the world. I get it. You know, many of us in our city don't think that America is great, you know, regardless of what the red hats say. I get that. Some of us are really just angry at the, the shutdown, the pandemic, and that it ever came to our country. And some of us are just angry that our kids are still virtual learning. And some of us are just angry at not being able to see people and, and losing jobs and, and not getting unemployment. They're just angry at every single thing. I get that. But as followers of Jesus, we need to ask that our anger be transformed. Once again, church, we are to be living a countercultural lifestyle here in this city where God has called us as his people, as Sojourn Church in North and Northeast Portland, our city and beyond. And the future kingdom of God, here's the hope that we have. When heaven meets earth, anger will vanish. Okay, we're going to have it until then. But when heaven meets earth, anger will vanish because loving relationships will flourish. And all how we long for that day. Now, nothing expresses kingdom realities more than reconciled relationships. Think about when the world watches us, how we interact with one another. Even if you're interacting with a non-Christian, when they see reconciliation, that speaks volumes because they see kingdom realities. We just finished Undivided in our gospel community, and, and it was all about your church and racial reconciliation. And we're thinking about tangible steps that even we can take as Sojourn Church, as this is such a hot topic and, and, and conversation, rightfully so, in our city, but the, that they can look around with, really not a whole lot of answers, but man, the church is exemplifying the answers that we need as they are being reconciled with one another. And so as we live this reality out, what people see is they see a biblical understanding of love. They see how it is that we actually mean that we love God and love others. And that we are to live that out as a covenant family, as the people of God, but also in connecting with everyone that we meet. We're having to have a different ethic. We're having the ethic of Jesus. Let me give you a few examples throughout history of how this was lived out. Now, some of these are going to be really, really big and some of these are going to be really, really small. But these are some examples that we have seen throughout history. Think about the Christians who lived in Germany, who suffered under Hitler, and who found themselves after the war suddenly joined by those who had served in Hitler's troops. What do you, what do you think that reconciliation looked like? What did, what did that look like to those around them who weren't Christ followers? Or the Afrikaner Christians of South Africa, whom Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who was standing next to Nelson Mandela, worked to form reconciliation as South Africa moved out of the apartheid into a genuine expression of what Africans call Ubuntu, Ubuntu, the sins that we become humans by living with others in reconciliation. They, They think you come into your fullness of humanity as you become reconciled with one another. Think about the Jim Crow laws in the South. What, what, what did that look like for those who were on the wrong side of that equation to later be reconciled with those who were on the right side of that equation and those who, who slavery was towards? 
What about husbands and wives, just daily life relationships? What does that look like? Some of you, maybe this morning, you need to get reconciled with your spouse. What does it look like when for siblings and for friends and for neighbors? I think of it this way, that reconciliation starts in those everyday examples with our, with our spouse, with our children, with our friends, with our neighbors, which lead to the extreme examples. So if you refuse to reconcile with someone in your family, in your own household, if you refuse to reconcile with a good friend of yours, if you refuse to reconcile with your neighbors, how do you think we're ever going to live out these big examples that we've seen throughout history? So it starts right here in our own heart, in our own life. Church, we must be intentional about reconciliation for it to become a lifestyle. And how does this happen? It happens as we ponder on things, as we, as we pray about things, as we discern things, and as we take action to say, you know what? Maybe at times you even say, I don't want to reconcile with you. I, I'm still kind of angry. But I want to follow through in this process because this is what the Bible tells me and I, because I am a Christ follower. I want to finish our time with an example this morning. Methodist minister Trevor Hudson recalled one painful moment in his own marriage. He just started pastoring his first church and ministry was taking off and from externally things just looked like they were popping. You know, modern day, this, this is a rock star church and one of the fastest growing churches in the country. They're going to be in the magazines and on the videos and the websites and all of that. Things are going really well. Attendance is increasing. Finances were improving and they were about to even build a new building. However, behind the scenes, things in their own marriage were not doing so well. With him being so busy with the work of ministry, he was often denying the closest person to him. He was denying his wife of, her, of his attention and of his time and of his, of his energy. He wasn't giving her any real communication or intimacy because things were so busy in the, the ministry. One night, this minister returned home and found a note on his bedside table. The note said, Trevor, I love you. I want to be married to you. Sometimes I worry, though, that one day I may not be worried if you don't come home. I miss you and I want to reconnect. So what do you think that did to Trevor? I imagine if that was me, that would crush me in that moment. And he realized that he failed the test of Christian's love for those that are closest to them. And so perhaps this morning, as we conclude, we need to ask ourselves, to whom do we need to drop such a note? To whom do we need to drop such a note? The hard work is acting on the intention and then living with the tension that is created by the action. But there is no way to create reconciled relationship with those around us until we intentionally decide to act on what Jesus summons us to do. Settle matters quickly. You can have all the intent in the world, but if the intent doesn't go beyond right here, then it really does no good. And so there is this, this, this tension. Should I do this? Should I not? Church, let me encourage you. Settle matters quickly. Time is short. Think back to our series in James. Our life here is but a mist. So do you really want your life to be spent with anger and grudges towards others? Settle matters quickly. As a Christ follower, there really are, there is no other option. There are no other options here. Jesus calls his followers to be people of reconciliation. In fact, he warns his followers of final destruction if they walk away from that path. And so church, this morning, what I think we have seen is that obviously we know not to murder, but I think we've also seen that our anger oftentimes is the equivalent of murder and that we are to be reconciled with others, that we are to extend the forgiveness that Jesus extended to us. And so church, let me pray for us and then we'll move into our time of response this morning. God, we come to you again. God, I sense that your spirit is moving throughout the people of Sojourn Church and any others that are tuning in. God, that there's areas of anger in some of our lives and some of our hearts, God, that we need to get right this morning. God, I ask that we would repent, that we give those over to you. 
God, I ask that we would go and get coffee or a phone call or whatever it is we need to do today. today. I walk around the neighborhood with anyone that we have anger towards. God, and, and that as a result, we do it because we are the people of you, God, because we want to live a countercultural lifestyle. Maybe we need to say that to the person we need to reconcile. We'll say, I know this is weird and I don't even know if I want to do it, but I want to do it because I'm living as one who's called out. God, I pray for the relationships that are present to be reconciled with spouses and with siblings and with parents and with other family members and neighbors and coworkers and friends. God, that you would reconcile these relationships for the sake of your kingdom. God, because we are citizens of your kingdom and we want to live out your kingdom ethic in this world. God, we love you. We ask that your spirit is working in and through us. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. You can connect with us and find more available teachings and resources at our website, sojournpdx.org.